and welcome to episode 61 of Girls Gone Canon, John 6 in a Storm of Swords. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from my blog, liesandarborgold.com, or on Twitter or Tumblr as Lies and Arbor. I am another one of your hosts, Eliana, and you might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit on the Maester Monthly Podcast, maybe as Arithmetric over on Twitter. Thank you, everyone, for joining us again this week to talk about John. We have some emails and tweets of notes once more. Yes, on Patreon, actually, one of our friends, Michael Yane, commented on uh, our episode from last week, episode 60, John 4 and 5. Listen to the episode today. The part about the wall being made of blood reminds me of the Red Keep. It is another monstrosity, as described by Catalan, that has a legacy of death. I love that, and I also love thinking about Hall mm. as well as another one of these sacrificial, big, magical buildings. Yeah, I think that's... I, I like that a lot, too. It reminds me about the idea, like, does the Red Keep warrant destruction? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but there's certainly a kind of symbolism behind it if that's what happens in the books, as it did in the show. And that legacy of death and blood that bolsters the Targaryen reign. And I th- think that's interesting that you tied it to Harrenhal. It kind of makes me wonder how many of the other architectural feats that we see throughout Westeros are bought and made with blood. And brought down with fire and blood. Oh, too. snap. Oh, snap. We are on it today. We are just like, wow, boom. Bam! We're just <laughs> jumping right into it, everyone. This is John. Boom! One, one chapter this week, because we have a lot of things that have come out this week for all of you. For example, if you are subscribed to us over on Patreon for $5 and up, subscribers get an episode on Northern Independence, which just came out this past Sunday. An emotional episode at times, even. We talk a lot about... The current state of the North in the books, we don't tread too much into John and Sansa territory, but we do talk a lot about Rob Stark's campaign, about the Kings of Winter and in the North of Old. Uh, lots of talk about Ned, Cregan, and characters like Torrin Stark. And we even talk a little bit about some actual parallels with real-world politics, like Scotland's independence and independence wars of old. So check that out if you want on patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. $1 and up gets perks, $5 and up gets special episodes and other perks, and we are talking about reformatting that in the future, especially with the addition of our new series that just came out this week, His Dark Materials, The Golden Compass. Or Northern Lights, depending on where in this world that you live. Both of them are the name for the same book. Publishers just decided they were going to do what they are going to do. But both of them are book one of the His Dark Materials series. And we are super excited to kick that off. I'm getting really excited as a first-time reader. Uh, getting through this book has been really fun so far. Yes, we are covering the Golden Compass slash Northern Lights. Part of the way this read-through is going is Chloe's going through it the first time. Not everyone has read the series, so I'm not going to tell you too much about what happens in those chapters because not everyone has as they follow along with this one. It's very different from, of course, the tone that we're taking with this A Song of Ice and Fire reread because this Historic Materials read is only a reread for some of us, but not all of us. Yeah, it is going to be focused, since it's written a little differently, it is going to be focused on its main point of view character, which is Lyra. We watch Lyra, obviously, that's our constant camera, is on her and her surroundings. And she is a badass heroine. Uh, There are a few other good moments that are not with her, and they're kind of like off-screen moments that we get to witness. But I'm excited about it. I'm excited about the show in the fall, too. We'll definitely be bringing some coverage on that, so stay tuned for more information playing that by ear as they haven't announced yet. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. We're excited. We're a little nervous. It's new. It's fun. Uh, We're just excited to bring a new story to you guys and chat about it and get in there and go canon with it. Yes. I'm excited to revisit it. I've been having fun talking to people about things as we reread it. But let's get back to this reread. We have a lightning round for all of you. Yes. Daenerys 4. With the help of some sellswords, Daenerys takes Yunkai and walks through a crowd shouting Jar Jar Binks impressions. Eliana wrote these, you guys. Usually, look, we're going to let you in on a trade secret. Usually uh, I write the lightning round for us so that we can just get through it and get to the good stuff and 
you know, we trade off and Eliana does some other stuff, some trade secrets here. And um, Eliana wrote these <laughs> this week and I didn't read them. I wanted it to be organic because she never reads mine. Yeah. So Eliana just uh, put a Jar Jar Binks in this overview yeah that's the joy in my opinion part of the joy of doing the lightning round is discovering what nonsense you put in and so i have put nonsense in here for you feeling attacked (gasps) that's what i love about it aria eight dark heart blood child and other ominous words from the ghost of high heart aria is then kidnapped by a dog also they talk about ashara dane in this chapter Air horns. Did somebody say a Chardin comes crashing into the room? Uh, Jamie six. Jamie lives his dream of performing a live action version of the Bear and the Maiden Fair. Damn, I get all of the ones that like you would have wanted for this. Should have done this differently. Yeah, we fucked up. We oh, fucked sorry, up. everyone. Uh, Catlin five. Rob does a lot of stuff. Like, writing a will, sending people to different places, like Mage Mormont and Galbert Glover to meet with Howland Reed. Who? Whomst? Whomst? I don't know a, I don't know a Howland Reed. I don't know a Howland Reed. Samwell three in a lone hut, Sam the Slayer protects a mother and child with the help of birds and a pair of cold hands. Arya, nine. And finally, we have Arya 9. A hound tells a young she-wolf about the time he saved a pretty bird. Oh, I didn't know you shipped Sansa. Oh, Eliana. is that? That's so nice. Is this what that means? That's what that is. You're a shipper now. Is that is that how ships are made? Everyone, also, if you would like to see some other ships that I've, that I've built, nobody knows this, and I'm going to announce it. It's also not true. I'm lying right now, but I'm going to tell you all. What if I were the special guest for a Nauticast episode about important relationships, particularly just ships, in Stannis' storyline? For example, Stannis shipped with Sansa. Also, Stannis shipped with both Sansa and Jon. Also, Stannis shipped with Mance. Also, of course, the classic Stannis shipped with Davos. These are ideas. (laughs) So, John Six. In overview on the chapter, John has returned to the wall, returned to the family that he has left after he hears of his brothers being slain, and his injury has him pretty down as the wildlings are on the move toward Castle Black. Yes, fuck, I lost You're my welcome. Place. John has pushed the horse and himself to their limits, trying to reach the wall before the Magnar, and twice he actually found himself going in the wrong direction. <laughs> kind of meta, right? Because him... First going north-north with Corin, he felt like he was going in the wrong direction, and then him and the wildlings were going in the wrong direction, but here he is, going home. He made it. He also keeps reopening his wound in this passage. Like, he's talking about how his wound keeps reopening every time he gets on a horse. So, to me, that, like, is kind of, like, almost, almost a little fourth wall breaking. Like, he's reopening his old wound. He's getting back on the horse, but he keeps reopening his old wound. He doesn't want it to start healing and he like be fucked up forever without proper treatment, you know, Mm -hmm. and like infections. So he just keeps getting it cut open. I mean, everyone, A, first of all, in Westeros needs therapy. But B, you pointing this out, I think, is really interesting because that's what we see Mm -hmm. happens in Jon's storyline. Basically, from this point in the books onwards, he just keeps reopening those old wounds of his and... He's unable to forgive himself for many things. And then as John heads to the wall, he wonders how many of his friends actually survived the trek on the other side of it. And then, and then, he reopens this old wound and remembers Egret. He remembered the smell of her, the warmth of her body, and the look on her face as she slit the old man's throat. You were wrong to love her, a voice whispered. You were wrong to leave her, a different voice insisted. He wondered if his father had been torn in the same way when he'd left John's mother to return to Lady Catelyn. He was pledged to Lady Stark, and I am pledged to the Night's Watch. This works on two levels for John. Uh, I like to compare this to his father figure, you know, and this works for Rhaegar and Ned. This works for Rhaegar leaving Lyanna in the tower and Ned inferring her into the crypts. 
You were wrong to love her. You were wrong to leave her. Ned taking those bones back to Winterfell. And, I mean, Rhaegar leaving and doing his duty to go back to end the fight and save Elia and the kids. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. I'm over here putting up streamers and setting off air horns and, and t-shirt slash confetti cannons. Uh, because this is, in fact, a cannon take. <laughs> it's also going to foreshadow his future relationship. I mean, yeah, it's kind of sad. Yeah, for sure. Bittersweet. And strange, finding you can change, learning you are wrong. Mm. Just as John makes it to Molestown, though, uh, he kind of almost realizes very late that he's like, oh, I'm in Molestown, because of course a lot of it is underground. And then there he just orders people, he's like, I need a new horse, and saddle, and bridle. And then at the same time, he's also warning the town, we have to evacuate, the wildlings are coming, please make your way to Castle Black before they get here. He's... Wearing his sheepskin here, though, right? So he arrives at Castle Black in his sheepskin, so why would Molestown just give him a horse and let him through? Would they just know because he had the look of a Stark and they'd seen him on the way up? I just think it's awful presumptuous. I don't know. I think it it's partially the way he carried himself. I don't know if they saw yeah. the cloak under it, but it reminds me of in one of the earlier instances when we meet Joffrey, he's like, I'm just gonna go to this random person's house and order them to give me shit. And maybe that's the way that John does it here because they say in the chapter, he just like orders people and tells them, yo, I need this stuff. But I mean, it's a it's an emergency right now, so. It is. And one thing that I think is really telling of John's character and just his personality is that even though he's technically a deserter in the eyes of basically anyone that sees him, John put the small folk in Molestown first. He put the people of the North first when he knew an attack was coming. Yes, yes, he didn't think to forget it. And he not only that, he opened up Castle Black to welcome them. I don't know if he has the right to do that or not, but regardless, Castle Black also needs all the help it can get. My people, they were afraid. Oh. One of the best lines in the whole series. My, that's like my take. I can't wait to be mad at Rob then. <laughs> when he parallels Theon. Yep, absolutely. Or no, parallels his interaction with Theon. No one is defending this side of the wall as John makes his way back. And I really love this really dreamy, star-riddled description that we get as John's making his way back home. As the stars began to fade in the eastern sky, the wall appeared before him, rising above the trees in the morning mists. Moonlight glimmered, pale against the ice. He urged the gelding on, followed the muddy, slick road until he saw the stone towers and timbered halls of Castle Black, huddled like broken toys beneath the great cliff of ice. By then, the wall glowed pink and purple in the first light of the dawn. So pretty. It's just beautiful writing. Good job, George. Just great prose. Uh, it's very much so that language we talked about in the North and the, the pictures of Dawn and what Dawn is and what it brings and whether it's, you know, some Dane metaphorical uh, symbolism or whether it's the Long Night symbolism. It's just really pretty and the North's magic is very visible all around them. Mm -hmm. John... Also kind of notes during this that no lights are on in any of the towers, including the Lord Commander's tower, and he starts to kind of worry, but then he notices smoke from the armory, and that's what makes him realize someone is there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I also agree. It's some great imagery, and I know I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I'm going to just talk about it again, of how in this moment we're cementing again how much more difficult this fight against the wildlings is going to be. Because John's just straight up riding up to Castle Black. There's nothing in between where he's come from and Castle Black that's stopping him, despite definitely looking like a turncloak. And that basically being, you know, a warrant on his head. He's marked for death in the north. But... That just goes to show even more how completely unprepared for a wildling invasion they are from either side of the wall. And then when John finally gets inside Castle Black, the first one to greet him, thankfully, he gets a warm welcome, more or less, from Donald Noy, who then is like, yo, what happened to your face? 
Yeah, John explains he was attacked by a skin changer. And uh, I liked this reunion. It was very warm. You know, uh, John hasn't had very many warm interactions besides Egret, haha, ha. uh, in the last little bit of time. And it, it's just refreshing to hear. It's the first time John has gotten to feel like he was home in a while. It's the closest thing he has to home, especially with Winterfell, as he's about to find out burnt. And I really liked this part of this passage. Despite fever, exhaustion, his leg, the Magnar, the old man, Egret, Mance, despite it all, John smiled. It was good to be back, good to see Noy with his big belly and pinned up sleeve, his jaw bristling with black stubble. Yeah, absolutely. As you said, there's that home feeling, and he has that anxiety towards the beginning of this chapter, and it comes back again later, because home isn't just, you know, a place. Donald Noy makes it feel like home for him, and he's hoping that all of his friends and the old bear are going to be there, that they're going to survive, because that's part of what makes Castle Black home to him. And then Donald Noy's like, so it's really interesting that you're here because the rumor says that you deserted to Mance because actually we had scouts. Jarman Buckwell scouts saw you riding with the wildlings in a sheepskin cloak. His relationship to John is quite curious here, especially when you think about his relationship to Stannis and Renly and Robert, the Baratheons, you know, in his past work. Um, Especially with the later relationship we get between John and Stannis. I just find it such an interesting connection in how Donald Noy deals with him. I like that he really points out John's sheepskin cloak. As you pointed out last episode, it's literally a wolf in a sheepskin cloak. And I've been thinking about how the wildlings right now are the big bad wolf and the Night's Watch are the three little pigs. And hmm. the big bad wolves are about to huff and puff and blow the wall down. Mm, that's interesting. Now it kind of makes me wonder if there will be like a wolf thing going on with bringing the wall down, but probably not. It's the horn. And like, in a way, the horn itself, you got to huff and you got to puff into it. There you go. That's the connection. I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your wall down with the horn. Yep. And we've kind of taken John's time with the wildlings for granted, like in terms of how covert this mission was going to be, because turns out everyone's like, oh... Dude, everyone, like, knows that John was with the wildlings because this guy saw them. And, I mean, this was always a risk. He kind of knew that. But that it isn't brought up to now, it, like, of course throws a wrench into his and Corin's plans. And we're going to definitely see that come to the forefront of the politics at the wall later on. Well, and it's like Robert says to Ned, you can never lie for love nor honor. Uh... John wouldn't obviously lie to them. He's telling them the truth about Corin, and a lot of the people there aren't going to believe him at the wall. But right now, there's danger at the door, so it's really not the most significant thing. And his desertion, in a way, kind of parallels Ned's treasons, right? And if John's final act is remembered as Queenslaying, as the HBO hit show Game of Thrones has pointed out, his treason, you know, what he goes down for in the annals, what everyone says, you know, everyone says Ned committed treason. He schemed to steal the throne and he admitted it on the Sept of Baylor and he died to save children. And if John's last crime is, you know, lying like this to the realm, doing it for the realm, basically. It's just interesting the parallels there because his desertion will be looked at by some as such a crime. And I think there's an element of it, too, in terms of that connection between truth and power, because a lot of it comes down to what you're saying, like who people are going to believe, who they have more faith in, and that has to do with like who they like more, but also what they want to believe, what stories they want to tell themselves about what goes on. Uh, it, it's much like, as you said, Ned's treason, but I think we're going to see something similar with a lot of things, like you said, the Queen's Sling, but maybe in terms of John's parentage, they can be like, wait, they kind of talked about it in the hit HBO TV show Game of Thrones just a little bit, where Daenerys is like, wait, I'm sorry, so you found out that you were Targaryen from your best friend who hates me and your brother, who who is Let's your family? <laughs> and Kind of, but not your brother? They're like, doesn't this seem weird to you? And then they're just like, that whatever. That her first thing she said to him was like, not actually your brother then. Yeah. 
But she was just like, wait, this these are the people that you found out from? She's like, doesn't that seem suspicious? And he's like, I don't know. They're just telling me. I don't know nothing. <laughs> he's like, whatever, I'm not going to yeah. do anything about it. But yeah, I mean, not dug into as deeply. But I think that's something that we'll see in John's storyline again. And he's not the only person that has that uh, king or queen slaying vibe. And we're going to actually talk about this person this episode as well, Jamie Lannister. We have a couple ideas of him coming up, so look out for that. First, yeah. though, the garrison has been playing into Mance's hands, into his plan. They've been spreading themselves too thin. Uh, they have Harma Dogs had his raiding here, and other wildling leaders are raiding in different places. Mance is attacking and spreading them out. John is trying to explain to them, you need more men here to defend the gate, but Noi notices John is wounded and with fever. Yeah, he's not doing too hot right now. And there are actually many characters that John shares characteristics with, of course, in A Song of Ice and Fire. We've talked about a couple of them throughout this. And... Of course, there's significance behind his hand being injured. A lot of people discuss that, but I think it's interesting, maybe a little poetic here, that John's leg is also injured. And then he's like, I don't want to take milk of the poppy. They're like, you got to take milk of the poppy, dude. You're like having a real rough time. And they're using it to bring his fever down because he has a fever and then has a couple of fever dreams because that's something else that ties him to his daddy, if not necessarily his biological father, as he <laughs> wrestles through this painful leg injury and trying to do the right thing despite dealing with that pain. Yeah, there's this line in this chapter, John had bitten his lip in his struggles. He could taste blood mingled with the thick, chalky potion. It was all he could do not to retch it back up. And then there's also a line in Eddard 9, when he first gets his leg crushed. There was a moment of blinding pain and the taste of blood in his mouth. And again, Jamie Lannister tastes blood in his mouth as well when his wound's getting cauterized. We'll come back to that in a bit. Uh, just some great parallels for these injuries and these characters, who all have fever dreams and all take this milk of the poppy. Trippy. Yeah. Coming back to matters at the wall, there's 120 wildlings that are south of it. So last we checked, when John climbed over the wall, there were like, I don't know, a couple of them. But now there's 120 wildlings south of the wall. And compared to that, there's only 40 people right now at Castle Black. And only few of them are good for fighting. A lot of them are really old, or they haven't been trained at all, or they're injured. So he's like, fuck... There's 120 south of the wall, and then there's all the other ones on the other side. And right now, the person who's in command is Sir Winton Stout. He's not a strong leader anymore. Yeah, he, like, I don't know, fell asleep in his porch or something. He he served the wall and the Night's Watch very well for 80 years, but that's not great in a situation where they're like, dude, we gotta, like, fight. So basically, Donald Noy is effectively in charge, and John's like, alright, alright. That's not bad. That's okay. And it says a lot that, like, Noi believes what John says to him immediately after coming from, like, being suspected of being a turncloak about following, like, Corrin's orders, that he puts some faith into what John's saying. And then Corrin... And then Donald gives John all this information about the wall right away without questioning or doubting him, like, who he's going to give it to. Granted, John's also probably delirious in pain and fever right now, but whatever. But in and of itself, it's a testament to the trust and respect that Donald Noy holds for John. I do like that Bowen Marsh has been the one that's played directly into Mance's hand this whole time, and John was like... John has a little bit of know-how for once, right, of how to help the men manning the wall. I think it shows growth for him as a military commander as we move forward into the Battle of the Dawn and even a dance with dragons and the stuff coming up with Stannis, his ability to stand on his own. He also really has to pull back to the Ned stuff, knowing your men. While it isn't always friendly and feasting with them, like with Bowen Marsh, John learns to know what each of his men will do, which is a big lesson he later covers when he deals with Jano's slint. However, he fails it later on with the rest of his men, right? Thinking that they would be okay with what he does. Just like in Arya 2 in A Game of Thrones, 
Her father used to say a lord needed to eat with his men if he hoped to keep them. Know the men who follow you, she heard him tell Rob once, and let them know you. Don't ask your men to die for a stranger. But something we see in A Dance with Dragons tells himself he can no longer sit with his friends at dinner because he has to be their boss now. All of this is echoed in his thoughts on Winston Stout and Noy and him analyzing their chances against the oncoming free folk while, you know, fever dreaming it out. It's kind of it's kind of sad as we see the way that John's relationship ends up deteriorating with a bunch of his men despite knowing knowing all of them. But speaking of people who should be at Castle Black and manning it and all that stuff, there's a particular character, I'm going to call him a character, who hasn't made it back to the wall yet, and that's Ghost. Ghost still isn't here, he learns, and he's just like, oh, okay. And I, over here, internally, am just like the screaming face emoji. (laughs) Ghost! Uh, well, you're not the only screaming face emoji. John's about to be one as well. He oh, lays down God damn it. and he's waiting for Maester Eamon. You like that segue? Yes. He's waiting for Maester Eamon and the ravens are yelling snow and he's like, God damn it, Sam. I can't believe you fucking taught them to do this. I thought that was great. And I'm like, no, it's really just Blood Raven and Brienne. They do it anyways, like smart ass. Um, so Eamon treats John's wounds and John tells him what he knows or what he learned. And then he learns himself that J.R. Mormont, L.C., the old bear, was murdered Murder. by their own men, mutineers, men of the watch that forsake their vows and killed their own brother. The words hurt more than his own fingers hurt. You know, one father figure a book. I think that's a great, great balance, you know? It's a great balance to just kill one a book. I mean, the next one doesn't die. Right and and yes. dance, yeah. It doesn't die in dance, but so it's not per book. It's it's like a book and a half every. John becomes the daddy figure. Oh, honestly, wow. I mean, look at Satin. John dies. He's the father figure, and he dies. There you go. Mind blown. Wow. Damn. All right. John becomes the daddy. Yeah, he does, and I mean, kill the boy and let the daddy be born. He takes on that role of doing judgment, especially as as Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. Wow. Damn. The father. Of us all. But not a father, because he will father no bastards. The daddy, the Holy Spirit. Well, he fathered Satin, and Satin's a bastard. damn. Wow. Wow. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) The way this chapter is constructed, though, like, I mean, like, yeah, coming back to those uh, father figures a little, it it really is hurtful for John to learn all of that, because at the beginning of this chapter, we're thinking about who John wants to have seen survive the attack on the Fist of the First Men, because obviously he doesn't know about the mutiny at Crasser's yet. And the first person that he thinks of is like, I hope that the old bear made it. He's also thinking about that because throughout the past few chapters, when he's pondering his return to the wall, he's like, man, I really don't want to disappoint J.R. Mormont. And so hearing that J.R. Mormont didn't make it, and also that he's never going to see him again, is just another gut punch when he didn't get to see Ned again, either. Like, he definitely thought he was going to see both of them one more time. He's like, well, fuck. John remembered the old bear as he'd last seen him, standing before his tent with his raven on his arm, croaking for corn. Mormont gone. He had feared it ever since he'd seen the aftermath of Battle on the Fist, yet it was no less a blow. Who was it? Who turned on him? Garth of Old Town, Olo Lophand, Dirk. Thieves, cowards, and killers, the lot of them. We should have seen it coming. The watch is not what it was. Too few honest men to keep the rogues in line. Donald Noy turned the maester's blades in the fire. A dozen true men made it back. Dolor's Ed, Giant, your friend the Oryx. We had the tale from them. I like that call out of the thieves, cowards, and killers, the lot of them. We'll get into this a lot more when we someday hit Sam and, of course, Catelyn. uh, Catelyn's last chapter specifically and some of the stuff in Game of Thrones and Clash of Kings. When you think of the first mention of Gastrite, you usually think of Clash of Kings. You have Daenerys and Karth, the twins' visits, the manse, the Craster's Keep. But in A Game of Thrones, we see Rob greet Tyrion with his sword on his lap, offering hostility towards... Tyrion, right? The twist is the phrase are open with giving Gastrite, but then they break it. 
just like Craster extends it and he revokes it, but the mutineers kill pretty much everyone. Which is also a violation of guest right, right? This is kind of a two-way street. You're like, I shouldn't yeah. really be killing my host. And part of it is because, of course, guest right is not just fucking cute and shit. It's like... It, it's... it's nece- Wars have been started over it. Yeah, it's a necessary tacit understanding between the lords and and others in Westeros, not just the lords, because it's necessary if you're ever going to be able to not just start wars, just to stop them. There needs to be yeah. there needs to be some assurance of safety if anyone's gonna like sign a treaty or or make an agreement or something. John is amazed that only a dozen men of the two hundred made it back and that Bowen Marsh is now in charge, I guess. For real. <laughs> Until, like, they make a choosing, they do a vote, uh, very democratic, the Night's Watch. John thinks it's either going to end up being Cotter Pike or Dennis Malice. Fuck. Dennis Malister. The commanders of the Shadow Tower and East Watch were good men, but very different. Sir Dennis, courtly and cautious, as chivalrous as he was elderly. Pike, younger, bastard-born, rough-tongued and bold to a fault. Worse, the two men despised each other. Which, of course, the Ballisters and the Ironborn also hate each other, so it makes sense. Uh-huh. I do like that Pike is almost described almost similarly to John. there. He's younger, bastard-born, and bold hmm. to a fault. That's true. It's interesting. I wonder if that paints his feelings on Pike. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, and coming back to what you are saying about John knowing his people as he knows Bowen Marsh... It's interesting the way that he he looks at this because his assessment of the political situation actually turns out to be exactly right. Because, yes, the election does end up being between Cotter Pike and Dennis Malister and then, wait, secret third-party candidate, but whatever, we'll get to that later. John, like, doesn't really enjoy politics and obviously he struggles with being in a leadership position as we're going to see in the next book. But that he understands that these are probably going to be the two candidates shows that he understands how power flows so it's kind of cool that we're seeing this set up in these chapters before we get to the choosing you know before everything that happens john is forced to drink milk of the poppy for his pain and to bring the fever down he explains the magnar of then to noi and to aemon and noi is confused for a moment the magnar's a lord on skagos no, I said. There were Skagosans at Eastwatch when I first came to the Wall. I remember hearing them talk of him. John was using the word in its older sense, I think, Mr. Eamon said. Not as a family name, but as a title. It derives from the old tongue. It means Lord, John agreed. Steer is the magnar of some place called Then, in the far north of the Frostfangs. Oh my god, you made him sound like a Muppet! That's amazing. Did I? Yes, but I no, love it. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think I could have done it better, but I'm, I'm just not sure. No, I'm, I'm very I'm pleased sure with this. I'm very pleased yeah. with it. Thank you. <laughs> that was a double hitter right there. Yep. So Eamon has always really known John's heart, even in A Game of Thrones, right? When he says to him, it's always hurt. It will always hurt the choosing. Uh, he knows John's heart, and I think it's really cool that he notes what John has learned of the old language, I think that kind of paints the picture that Eamon already knows. He knows what John learned and what he did when he was north of there. I think Eamon understands the truth of this desertion. From what we've learned from Corn Halfhand, the wise ones amongst the Night's Watch do, right? They understand like, oh, John understands their culture because he respects them as people and they understand that like on the other side of the wall, they're just people trying to fucking live too. And it's not exactly foreshadowing, but we are being introduced to Skagos in this book, which helps in terms of that world building and makes it seem less jarring later on when we learn that Rickon has allegedly been taken to Skagos. Oh, that's true. It's a a nice little harvest that George is yielding there that he planted. Here's Skagos, and now it's becoming important. It really sets that stage for A Dance with Dragons. And all the thematics of that, like, cannibalism, heart tree, mm. sacrifice stuff that's coming up. So, good stage setting. Good job, George. I'm glad it grew. I'm glad it was, uh, prosperous. <laughs> John explains that Mance never found the Horn of Winter. Eamon ponders that Mance believes in such an ancient legend. That reminds me of Lewin a little bit. Oh, Lewin, I miss you. 
when but also like you come from dragon family like you literally have have dreams about seeing dragons again shut up Eamon yeah that's true and he's all like fuck I wish someone had told me about the horn not the horn about the dragons later on but yeah I don't know I guess it's one of those like seeing is believing things and the way that word has come back and people have seen the dragons it makes him believe again maybe I don't know or maybe it has to do with you know, you're talking about Luin, but maybe it has to do with coming back to that idea of believing what's true and what's not. It has to do with what people want to believe exists. Yeah. Because obviously Mance... He's repressed a lot, too. Aemon. Yeah, like, obviously Aemon wants the dragons to exist. They're a big part of his family, and, like, he's like, fuck, if we had only had dragons, maybe, like, the rest of my family wouldn't have died. Whereas for Mance, obviously he <laughs> wants to believe that the Horn of Winter exists. Yeah, to save his people. Exactly. When John explains all the wildlings believe in the horn, he starts to talk about Egret believing it. Who is Egret? Donald. Oh, wait, no, pointedly. Who is Egret? Donald Noy asked pointedly. A woman of the free folk. How could he explain Egret to them? She's warm and smart and funny, and she can kiss a man or slit his throat. She's with Steer, but she's not, uh, she's young, only a girl, in truth, wild, but she, she killed an old man for building a fire. His tongue felt thick and clumsy. The milk of the poppy was clouding his wits. I broke my vows with her. I never meant to, but it was wrong, wrong to love her, wrong to leave her. I wasn't strong enough. The half-hand commanded me, ride with them, watch, I must not balk. I, his head felt as if it were packed with wet wool. Hmm. I do love this passage, and it, it shows how well John feels he has come to know Egret, like how to explain Egret. There's so much depth to her that he feels he can never make them understand who she is to him. But it almost suddenly I have a question based on the way he's acting here. Did they feed him milk of the poppy not just for his fever, but to try and get the truth of his of his loyalties out of him? Mm. That wouldn't surprise me. Maybe, because now, like, Donald Noy's, like, grilling him who's Egret. That's interesting. I wonder. Um, I don't know. We probably wouldn't get the answer. Probably if, not. Maybe if we just pay attention to this more, but I really don't. I don't know. I don't think we'll get an answer. I don't think it's, like, a truth. But it would make sense in the way that Mance was grilling him and trying to get him to answer things. That's what it reminds me of. Yeah. Yeah. I th- that That's a similar thing going on there. I mean, they have to drug him for his leg no matter what, so. That's true. It, it could be a little of both. Like, they're like, all right, he's in this position, and therefore we can... Use it. Yeah. It's such a haunting refrain. Never should have loved her. Oh. Should have never left her. It's it's honestly the saddest. Especially, I, I wonder if I thought it was, like, as sad when I first read this. I think I was just like, damn, yeah, John. But then after she dies and you reread this, you're like, damn, John. Especially with the dream we're going to talk about in a little bit. It's like the guilt is just like excessive. And I don't know, he really feels like he deserves those arrows shot in him at this point. You know, he feels awful. I would understand. I mean, it's like when you make plans with someone and you say you're going to do it, but at the same time, in your heart of hearts, you've known since the day you said yes that you were not going to this event, right? Like, you knew. You knew it wasn't going to happen, and then you bail, like, the day of. Like, that's what this is. But worse. <laughs> yeah, but a lot worse. And, like, there was some blood involved and some death. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, this is like you knew from the first day you said yes to going to this party. I'm going to throw this out there. I think growing up, life advice for everyone. As I've gotten older, I've just gotten better at not having to say yes to things that I don't want to go to. Ugh, I'm the worst at it. And I think... But also, like, sometimes I just don't know how I really feel until the day of, which that's kind of how John felt. He didn't really know how he actually felt until the day of. Until the day he was asked to kill this old man. I mean, yeah, true. Yeah, he was like, maybe I don't want to do this. True. And, and, I mean, I think that's absolutely the case. I, but there's a, there is a difference between knowing you're never going to go to an event and thinking and truly believing that you might until the day comes. And then, of course, like you said, there are those events where you're like, I don't know, it can go either way. But also those are events that usually 
They usually matter like a little less, right? I don't know. Right. Like, because like everyone understands, even the people on the other side, maybe like that. Mm, this might not be a thing. Or it's like, I don't know, a Facebook Maybe we event. Took a metaphor too far. Yeah. I just wanted to give everyone the life advice of like, be true to yourself. And if you don't want to go to something, don't put yourself in the position and, and be upfront with everyone. Do it for yourself. Self care. Yeah, like John with the Night's Watch. Don't so do anything that any that John does. John does not understand self care. Oh my god. He really doesn't. There's this line in that passage. She's warm and smart and funny, and she can kiss a man or slit his throat. It reminds me of Danny. Uh, there's another line that follows it. She's young, only a girl in truth, wild, but she she killed an old man for building a fire. Uh, he's gonna have a lot of ethical quandaries at the things Danny's gonna do, right? I think uh, this is definitely some shading at the future for him i'm sure that he's gonna have some more ethical quandaries to face yeah absolutely because i mean he's defining egret through through all these contradictory things to show that complexity in her how to explain her and that's absolutely the case with danny she has a lot of contradictions within her and that's what makes her such a compelling character as well you're wrong to love her you were wrong to leave her you were wrong to love her. You were probably wrong to kill her, but... Yeah, but you know, that's a whole nother tale. Yeah, it might. it's probably going to go a little differently. I hope. I mean, it'll probably mostly go like that, but like... Yeah, it's going to be like that. A little mostly, differently. But like, detailed. N- hashtag subtle nuance did. Oh my god. Eamon then cuts into John with a hot knife, and John thinks that he will not scream. I love the line, but he broke that vow as well. Uh, Noteworthy, another man that has broken some vows, Airhorns, had to have his wound cauterized as well in this same book. With a bowl and a sharp blade, Kyburn cleaned the stump while Jamie gulped down Strongline, spilling it all over himself in the process. His left hand did not seem to know how to find his mouth, but there was something to be said for that. The smell of wine in his sodden beard helped disguise the stench of pus. Nothing helped when the time came to pare away the rotten flesh. Jamie did scream then and pounded his table with his good fist over and over and over again. He screamed again when Kyburn poured boiling wine over what remained of his stump. Despite all his vows and all his fears, he lost consciousness for a time. When he woke, the maester sewing at his arm with needle and cat cat. cat. What is Hold on. I don't, Hold on. We need to it, it must be like literally, you gotta look I it gotta up. I gotta look it yeah. up. We can't not. I left a flap of skin to fold back over your wrist. You have done this before, muttered Jamie weakly. He could taste blood in his mouth where he'd bitten his tongue. So all those little things that we talked about with the Ned and John similarities as far as the fever dream, the blood in the mouth, uh, the breaking of vows and the breaking of promises in Ned's case... And, of course, the screaming uh, at the at the wound. They're all right with each other. Good parallels. Yeah. I think that it's, it's interesting that you're bringing that to the forefront because that is a lot of what this book is about since, you know, Rob breaks his vows too, but he probably would have been better off just losing his hand. Uh, also. Break your vow and you get stabbed. Apparently. Or shot with an arrow. I found out what cat gut is. All right. Okay. According to Wikipedia, oh, no. cat gut is a type of cord that is prepared from the natural fiber found in the walls of animal intestines. Cat gut makers usually use sheep or goat intestines, but occasionally use the intestines of cattle, hogs, horses, mules, or donkeys. Despite the name, cat gut manufacturers do not use cat intestines. So it's probably like an abbreviation of cattle gut. Mm. As opposed to necessarily actually cats. Stop gut, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they people use them apparently in violin strings, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. So animal byproduct, yum. Yeah, I mean, I guess it makes sense in like a surgical setting, since like. No, no, it does. It does make sense too, because you got to use all parts of the animal. Yeah, apparently it was also just like less expensive and easier to obtain. So. Mm. Yeah, and I guess it's an organic material, like, as opposed to, I don't know, something else. Maybe it, like, just goes with the flesh better. Who knows? 
Yeah, I mean, it's not getting used for much else. Yeah. Cactus. The pain was so huge, he felt small and weak and helpless inside it. A child whimpering in the dark. Egret, he thought, when the stench of burning flesh was in his nose and his own shriek echoing in his ears. Egret, I had to. For half a heartbeat, the agony started to ebb, but then the iron touched him once again and he fainted. So there's that great little passing out in consciousness that goes on when cauterizing those wounds. I mean, shit, seems rough, dude. It's interesting they didn't give him, like, a rod to bite down on. That happens sometimes in things. Mm -hmm. So you don't bite- Like a rag. Yeah, so you don't bite off your tongue in pain or whatever. Or in, like, to help clench. John dreams, as he is fainted, that Egret is holding him with gentle hands. And then, as he wakes, his leg is still burning. But- Good news, Pip and Gren. Ron and Hermione are in the wing, the yes. hospital wing, after Madame Pomfrey just closed the curtain and walked away. Yes, they are here, and <laughs> thankfully Filch is not. Oh my god, <laughs> Mrs. Norris is not afoot. <laughs> yeah, Mrs. Norris is not here. Dumbledore just died, though. Oh, fuck. That's true. That is what happened. So, <laughs> what we're trying to say is Pip and Gren are here, but... Not with Bowen. Thank God, no Snape. And then Gren gives a gives a rundown on who made it back. He says, Dywin did, Giant, Dolor's Ed, Sweet Donald Hill, Ulmer, Left Hand Lou, Garth Greyfeather, four or five more. Me. And then John asks after Sam. And then Gren looks away and says that, well, I saw... Sam stabbed another with dragon glass, and then we all called him Sam the Slayer afterwards. Hmm. But then you left him because he curled up with the old bear's body. You were wrong to love him. You were wrong to leave him, Gren. <laughs> That's basically what John is yelling is. about. He's so mad at them. Inside, he's just like screaming, How could you leave him there? And Pip pipes up, and he's like, Sam could still be alive and surprise everyone. And we're like, Duh. I mean, true. I mean, Sam is full of surprises. That's what I love about him. He is a wizard. Yeah, he's my favorite little wizard. John tries to get up, and he screams in more pain. Eamon tells him, you need to lay down and heal. And John's like, uh, I don't think there's time for that. Has anyone sent word to Winterfell and owe to the king about this attack? And they're like, bad news, tiger. (laughs) Winterfell, uh, kind of burned down. Your brother's dead. Theon <laughs> killed him. Fucking dead. Damn. Uh, and he burned Winterfell, allegedly, quote unquote, which then was saved by the brave Boltons. Lol. If you watch the hit HBO TV show Game of Thrones, you'll know that the Boltons avenged the Red Wedding. <laughs> Ramsay Bolton specifically killed Roose, killed Walda, killed the baby, which actually avenges Rob and Talisa. And their child, unborn Ned. Yeah, if you really think about it, it's it's an exact parallel, you know? You got a Frey, you yeah. got a Bolton. This is yeah. this is what we wanted. We wanted the Red Wedding Avenged, and we got it. Yeah, thanks for the good show analysis, Chloe. <laughs> Thank you, Chloe. Thank you, Chloe. <laughs> Thank you, Ramsey Bolton. Thank you. Everybody say <laughs> thank you, Ramsey Bolton. Uh <laughs> my favorite is when people think that you're being serious i know i mean not that they you're never not, not that you're not yeah no i'm being serious but like no one ever learns yeah if everyone never. would just accept it uh isn't this one of the first times we learn about theon being alive uh, i'm not sure like they kind of say like that this happened they don't say that he died i guess it, it's more confirmed in the next chapter when Roos is telling catelyn like oh by the way uh, Ramsey has Theon. We've captured him. John had never liked Theon Greyjoy, but he had been their father's ward. Another spasm of pain twisted up his leg, and the next he knew he was flat on his back again. There's some mistake, he insisted. At Queen's Crown I saw a direwolf, a grey direwolf. Grey, it knew me. If Bran was dead, could some part of him live on in his wolf yes. as Orel lived within his eagle? 
Yes. The, the answer That's is like yes. It's like the biggest foreshadowing about John's death, right? Like, can we all just talk about this? That John has to warg into Ghost or I quit the series? It, so, if I'm not mistaken, the dance prologue wasn't the one that was originally written, right? Because Feast and Dance used to be one book. I believe that yeah. the Old Town one that we get in Feast is the prologue mm-hmm. that we actually... That George split, yeah. actually wrote for, like, whatever that one book was going to be called, which was going to actually be called The Dance with Dragons, all right, uh, before it was split. So it's interesting that, like, we have this line here, and then what jo- George chose to expand and, like, dig into is that, like, whole second life thing through Vera yeah. Mir. Anyway, drink this! Grand Holler cup to his lips. John drank. His head was full of wolves and eagles. The sound of his brother's laughter. The faces above him began to blur and fade. They can't be dead. Theon would never do that. And Winterfell, grey, granite, oak and iron. Crows wheeling around the towers. Steam rising off the hot pools in the godswood. The stone kings sitting on their thrones. How could Winterfell be gone? When the dreams took him, he found himself back home once more, splashing in the hot pools beneath a huge white weirwood that had his father's face. Egret was with him, laughing at him, shedding her skins till she was naked as her name day, trying to kiss him, but he couldn't, not with his father watching. He was the blood of Winterfell, a man of the Night's Watch. I will not father a bastard, he told her. I will not. I will not. You know nothing, Jon Snow. She whispered, her skin dissolving in the hot water, the flesh beneath sloughing off her bones until only skull and skeleton remained, and the pool bubbled thick and red. Ooh, boy, that was a dream, huh? Yeah. Sometimes my dreams are this wild. I'm going to be real. Dude, I don't know if I have dreams like that. I don't dream a lot anymore. But sometimes, once in a while, but not crazy like that. That was nuts. And like, that was... That was a guilt dream right there. That was a milk of the poppy guilt dream. I don't know why my dreams are weird. (laughs) Is it milk of the poppy? It's not. I don't know what's wrong with me. And it's not guilt. They're just like really wild. Wild shit happens. Do you eat before bed? Mm, That could be it. I don't know. I don't usually, usually, but maybe it is too close. I don't know. I don't know. Wow. Lots of guilt in there. Uh, it's hard to remember since this is a reread that she's not dead yet. <laughs> she. So it's like this is direct foreshadowing. We're all like getting ready for her to die. We're all just like, ah, it's coming. If I let go now, it won't be that bad. That's true. You know. <laughs> that's what Game I did with HBO's hit show Game of Thrones, and that's why it's season eight. You know, as we said during the season, season eight can't hurt me anymore. <laughs> No, no one can hurt me. You know what? The chain, the chains are free. The shackles off. Yeah. Uh, right back to that theme of bastardy. John does not want to father a bastard. That's uh, obviously prominent in this guilt dream, and he sees his dad's face watching him. His daddy's face watching him. Oh. Um, he was the blood of Winterfell, a man of the Night's Watch. I love that the Stark kids use winterfell as their strength and john is a stark too you're a stark and a targaryen john and you can embrace the best parts of that we'll let you so you can embrace winterfell and sansa thinks it she's the blood of winterfell uh, Arya thinks you know she's a dire wolf of winterfell all the time i love that strength they take from the castle from home oh it is their home so I'm going to come back to John and Theon's relationship here again for a second, because it seems like John kind of, he doesn't necessarily like respect Theon, but he's like, I never liked him, but he was our ward. Like, I didn't have to, I guess. He wasn't really part of our family, is I think some of the subtext of what he's thinking there. But he's also, I think, there's a part of him that's projecting onto Theon because there's a part of John, I think, that knows that if anyone understands what Theon Greyjoy felt like, it's him being an outsider in Winterfell because he's like, Theon would never do that. It's interesting that of anyone, John's the one who thinks Theon would never do that. Theon did. <laughs> um, he didn't kill his brothers. Uh, what he did wasn't great, but he, you're kind of half right, John. 
Yeah, and like at the same time, he did kill someone. Yeah. So, but no, no, I agree. Like it's still, you know, he tried to choose the best route out of a bad situation and failed. Uh, but he chose a route. It was better than the other option, I suppose. And it is interesting that John immediately sticks up for him. I mean, of all the people that feel left out, of all the people that are basically bastards in Winterfell's court, it is those two. And it's incredulous to think that home is gone, especially those tall granite walls. Like he says, it's iron and oak. It's granite. Like you can't, what could hurt Winterfell? This is the first stage of the grief grief process john's here in denial and like yeah with the on i was thinking about this i think throughout this week of both john and theon come to a crossroads and we talked about like that a little in the last chapter but theon chooses to kill those two miller's boys they're technically no one but like that's a bad act and he chooses to do that and go forward as a way of trying to prove loyalty to his family. And then when John's asked to prove his loyalty to the wildlings, he doesn't. He chooses not to kill this... Yeah, he chooses not to kill this unnamed old man. Someone else does it, it still happens, but the fact that he chose not to is meaningful. And so I think he's projecting, yeah, some of that onto Theon. I think Theon and John's identity issues are what ring the most through that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, John is running to the identity that he can have. He's trying to take any identity he can have. He really, like, embodies that I am a man of the Night's Watch because he's never been allowed to be a person. He's always been a snow. He's never been a Stark. Yeah. And now the men of the Night's Watch is the place to shed that identity. So he's running to shed that identity while Theon is running to also find the identity that accepts him, but he only wants one trying to shed that wolf skin. Yes. Yeah. They're like both, it's, in, they're like intersecting, like, because John's trying to shed that sheep skin. And that's mm-hmm. why he doesn't believe that Theon would do it, because he doesn't want to believe that Theon would betray Winterfell, because John is there trying to tell everyone and himself, I did not betray the Night's Watch. Watch. And, like, especially because this is the second betrayal that we're hearing, like, in this chapter, because earlier Mm -hmm. he's hearing about, you know, this mutiny at Craster's Keep. So now everyone's, like, fucking on guard. Like, who's gonna, who's gonna fucking mess things up next, right? Yeah, who's gonna believe you also? So he's like, I can't believe this of Theon because otherwise, what if people believe that of me? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it does go back to that other person that we've been chatting about, Jamie Lannister, the uh, Kingslayer, and he has a fever dream on Milk of the Poppy, uh, much like this fever dream and much like Ned's. A lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. It has Brienne in it, has Egret and John's and Brienne and Jamie's. Ned Stark is judging them both in their dreams. He comes to judge Jamie. He uh, mm. judges John in the but he couldn't not with his father watching. And they both have these injuries. Uh, not only does John have his leg, but he has his hand flex. And Jamie now has a phantom hand flex, hmm. right? He no longer can do that flexing of the hand. And of course, there are the different parts of the dream passage. I swore an oath to keep him safe, she said to Rhaegar's shade. I swore a holy oath. We all swore oaths, Sir Arthur Dane said so sadly. And then Jamie feels his phantom hand. He feels his hand in his dream again. I felt the strength in my fingers and the rough leather of my sword's grip, my hand. And then there's that later passage. The moonlight glimmered pale upon the stump where Jamie had rested his head. The moss covered it so thickly he had not noticed before, but now he saw that the wood was white. It made him think of Winterfell and Ned Stark's heart tree. It was not him, he thought. It was never him. But the stump was dead, and so was Stark, and so were all the others. Prince Rhaegar and Sir Arthur and the children, and Ares. Ares is most dead of all. Do you believe in ghosts, Maester? He asked Kyburn. Yes. I, I, that's really interesting that Jamie thinks of Ned as the one judging him there. And it comes back to like this point that you're talking about regarding guilt. It's funny that people turn to Ned when they think, ah, oh, I feel real guilty. 
because and they're always like i feel guilty because ned stark's judging me and he's the guiltiest of them all well i don't think he should feel guilty of the thing that he did but granted we don't really know what he did i guess exactly but whatever but he does he also feels so much guilt it's something that goes throughout all of his chapters and they it follows john john's gonna be haunted by guilt now soon but it's funny that for other characters ned takes that role because i'm gonna get freudian for a second we have ned kind of set up as a moral compass in that first book as we've discussed before and thus he kind of becomes this like super ego to all of these other characters in like that freudian sense coming through as the old gods and thus imposing this idea of morality and here for john he's imposing that morality regarding bastardy and Mm -hmm. and not fathering one and that's like how Jamie has those vows too that he can't father any children, even though he has. <laughs> but it's like a nice parallel of yeah. you know he has fathered bastards compared to John in this moment. Yeah, he's broken vows, fathered bastards. Because like at the same time, Jamie was disillusioned, right? Like he gave up. He's like mm-hmm. fuck this, fuck these vows. Same as in many ways, like Theon gave up. He's like I can't win, right? Yeah, it's all set against you. And, but Theon still tried to win in a different way. And he's like, I'll win by any means necessary. And Jamie's like, I'm just not going to fucking play anymore. Whereas John's- And John's just trying to do the right thing. Yeah, John's in here. He's like, I know that I messed up. It, it, which is a very Ned thing to do, right? That's why people dislike mm-hmm. Ned within the story. Because they see him as this moral paragon. And they're like, how can you be that when you fathered a bastard? And that's the point. Ned still tries to do the right thing, even though he's messed up. Mm. So- yeah. <sighs> <sighs> yes. Wow. We're we're coming so far right now, and I'm just it's emotional. I, I really feel for John. He's going through a lot right now. Yeah, not only is he going through all of these things, he's also sixteen and all of his hormones are where they are, and he's just learning right now that he can feel more than two things at once, as depicted <laughs> in the award winning movie. Inside Out. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually like a real thing, though, I, I, if I'm not mistaken. But. It is. No, it is. You're correct. I also come back to... <laughs> there's a line that I, I can't even find the tweet right now, but my partner and I quoted to each other all the time from the YA novel spo- like satirical Twitter account, and it basically says that. They're like, how could someone feel two things at once? Uh, oh youth fiction young adult fiction is so good it is so good everyone i hope you guys enjoyed this chapter uh this was this was a chapter i know it's short i know it's briefer this week but quick easy listening you likely have one or two other podcasts of ours to get through this week maybe a backlog built up so enjoy it while you can breeze on through we're gonna get really going into the battle at castle black in the near future we'll also be taking a break soon um it is summer and so we are doing you know some summer things and the week of august 12th if you are a 30 dollar and up patron you would have gotten an episode on august 14th if you're 10 dollar and up patron you would get an episode on august 15th and If you are anything else, you would get an episode on August 16th. We are not releasing an episode that week. But we will the week after. We will be back. Yes. So we shall be back, and there's plenty of content to keep you going in the meantime. So listen up, give it a download, and where can you find those to download, Eliana? Well, you can find them to download over on Google Play, on iTunes, on Podbean, on Acast, on Stitcher, and on Spotify. And Podbean, where we're hosted, girlsgonecanon.podbean.com. If you want early access to some of our episodes or any other perks, you can check us out on patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. We really appreciate any support, and big shout out to all of our patrons that support us. We have a new episode on Patreon out about Northern Independence. Yes, $5 and up gets you access to that, and every new 
Patreon or old Patreon special episode monthly that we put out. And you can also keep up with all of our new updates over on social media. Follow us on Twitter at Girls Gone Canon, or if you just want to talk about the episode or send in fan art, or let us know anything on your mind, hit us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. And speaking of which, we've been seeing some some great takes of Chloe's really coming into her own and really nailing. She's really getting into those John voices. <laughs> those, yes, thank you for all your support. Those made me really happy today. Today I did the doubleheader, Eamon and John. You did. So, yeah, I felt good. Uh, it was It's a lot of work, so thank you guys for supporting me as I... Try to come into my own voice world. Eliana's not the only star, bitches. That's why I make you do John all the time. It's so great. I get so much joy from it every single time. <laughs> I know you do. I do it for you guys. Thank I you. do. Thank you. All right. As always, catch me on the internet. Lies in Arbor. Lies in ArborGold.com. I'm Chloe. And as always, you can cash me outside. I'm Eliana. How about that? <laughs> How about that? <laughs> Bye, guys.